Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. All right, everybody, welcome back to the story box. If you have a pen and paper available to you, you're going to need it for this episode in particular because I have uh, Jamie Wheel on, on this story box. Now, for those of you that don't know who Jamie is, he's the co-author of the global bestseller and Pulitzer Prize nominated Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley Navy SEALs and Maverick Scientists Are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and work, and he's also the founder of the Flow Genome Project, an international organization dedicated to the research and training of ultimate human performance, which is pretty, pretty cool. Uh, since founding the organization in 2011, it has gone on to become a leading voice of evidence, based peak performance, counting award uh, winning academics, legendary professional athletes, special opera- operation commanders, and Fortune 500 business leaders among the hundreds of thousands of people in its global community. Jamie has a new book coming out called, well, it's really out right now. It's called Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World that Has Lost Its Mind. It has been released with Collins. Jamie is an expert in peak performance and leadership, specializing in neuro Theranolopology, <laughs> it's a hard word for me, everyone, which is basically the intersection of culture, biology, and psychology. He has advised everyone from U.S. Navy War College uh, and Special Operations Command, the athletes of Red Bull, to the executives of Google, Goldman Sachs, Deloitte, uh, Cisco, and the Young President's Organization. His work and ideas have been covered in the New York Times, Financial Times, Wired, Entrepreneur, Harvard, Business Review, Forbes, Inc., and TEDx, among many, many others. This conversation, I had my work cut out for me. I, I have to say, and I actually do say that in the very opening, uh, as you're about to listen to, but what I do want to say is uh, this is the first conversation I have had where my mind has literally been blown 
into great proportions. <laughs> we talk about many different uh, areas of peak performance as well. Then we dive into his new book, Recaps of the Rapture, which I think you guys are going to find fascinating with his whole explanation around it and how my hope is that the world can become better. Um, but the question really remains, how is that going to happen when really the whole world seems to be like it's lost its mind or that's what Jamie uh, aims to explain to each and every one of you today. So this conversation is already quite long, so I won't take up too much more of your time, but I will say that the Storybox is uh, on Apple Podcasts top charts now, which is honestly insane. We are uh, cross education, self-improvement, health and fitness. We are number four. We are one of the top shows there, which is uh, really humbling to actually see and, and be a part of. Uh, since I started this this show way back when. But thank you each and every one of you that continue to show up. Please, please, if you do get something from this, share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know about this conversation. Uh, get your pen and paper out. Also, before you go, please leave a rating and review over another podcast. It goes a long way in building this community and letting me know how I can improve as your host, the kind of questions, that sort of thing. But anyway, guys, you know what time it is. It is time to journey into this story box together and listen to the wisdom, the advice, and the story of none other than Jamie Wheel. Thanks for having me, Jay. Appreciate it. Man, I was reading your, your bio, and I think I have my work cut out for me today <laughs> with, with the kind of questions that I want to ask you. But it's very, very good to have you here. I'm excited. Before we dive into how this all got started for you, why you do it, uh, your new book, the whole bit. I have mm -hmm. one question that I love starting off all my conversations with, which is mm -hmm. what does success look like for you? Sort of timeless right now, as I was growing up, give me, give me a, give me a frame and I'll, and I'll respond off the cuff. So has it changed for you? over time so when you were a kid to when you're middle-aged to the age that you are now has your version of success or your idea of success changed over time and if so why yeah i mean i mean the good news bad news is no it never changed which really just set me up for a world of hurt <laughs> you know because i think um the only thing that i was ever governed by or, or led by or led towards was what is a life of integrity, you know, lived in accordance with the truth as best as I could apprehend it. Mm. And, and as a result, that led to, you know, an awful lot of confusion, an awful lot of lonely times, an awful lot of stark choices, <laughs> and an awful lot of kind of not grabbing for the brass ring, not grabbing for, you know, the academic or the, the corporate or the, you know, or the social or whatever it would be. Cause it's like, well, those don't quite feel right. And there were definitely times where I would doubt, I mean, absolutely doubt. In fact, my, my wife, who we have been together for three decades since we were in college and university together, um, there would be many, many dog walks where we're like, are we batshit crazy or is the rest of the world? You know, and and now as the rest of the world does in fact appear to have gone batshit crazy and everybody is coming around to so many of the things that we came up doing and whether that's 
tiny homes. You know, we were, we were mountain guides and we, and, you know, and we loved to adventure and we lived, you know, hashtag van life in a Volkswagen Westfalia for a decade so we could kite surf and mountain bike and backcountry ski, you know, long before there was Instagram to document it, you know, and natural building and, and off-grid sustainability and, and a thousand things that now are absolutely having their moment. But back when, were somewhat, you know, I mean, there were obviously amazing communities in the mountains, amazing communities of folks, you know, around the oceans and everything else. But more, more broadly, or even homeschooling our children or permaculture or, you know, take, take a thousand examples where they were lonelier and less validated choices back when, but it never felt like we had a choice. So it was sort of like have to, you know, hook to this wagon. I sure hope it. I ho I, I sure hope we don't get pulled apart, you know, by the time we can drag it to the mountaintop. Mm. So how did you grow up, Jamie? Like, what were some of the lessons that your parents taught you? Did you always see yourself being an academic, or even more specifically in the the, the realm of peak performance? And uh, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. Um, this this world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, I grew up kind of in between cultures and continents. So my mother was South African, my father was English. He was a military test pilot in the British Royal Navy. Um, growing, he was also kind of a polymath, so he played like ragtime and classical piano, classical guitar, banjo. You know, all these things he would read physics books for fun, you know, and he was a military test pilot and a racing car driver. So like, so our life was very, um, you know, I would say sort of fun, rich life of the mind. There was tons of Greek and Rome, you know, and Latin classical references, Shakespeare, you know, fancy crosswords, books of mythology, you know, all that kind of thing. So like a life of the mind, a life of language, a life of ideas, um, for sure kind of came up in that and then was fortunate enough that, you know, my parents were both really interested in the outdoors. So sailing, water skiing, camping, skiing, those kinds of things um, were a young, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a 1970s to 80s kind of era, simple fun. And then um, actually saw, I was a senior in university and I saw this Robert Redford film called Jeremiah Johnson, mm -hmm. which was basically like the Revenant before Leo did the Revenant. You know, so he was a mountain man. He goes, he fucks off to the mountains of the Rockies. And that's actually where Robert Redford, the actor, fell in love with that area, bought the land, created the Sundance Institute, which has then become the Sundance Film Festival. So it was because of this film. But seeing that film, I was just like, oh my God, where are those mountains? And, and I have to go there. So completely changed my plans um, from trying to go to grad school at Yale for history to going to the University of Colorado because it, it was close to the mountains and I could learn all about those places and really just had a life always trying to balance adventure in the outdoors with a life of the mind. Cause I, I, I knew I didn't want to be a pinheaded academic and I knew I didn't want to just be a ski bum or a surf bum. Like I wouldn't have felt satisfied just living in a ski town or a surf town, delivering pizzas, you know, to, to, to shred all day. So that kind of drew me into both uh, environmental history and outdoor guiding and wilderness medicine. So it was sort of like, how do you become capable and competent in places that can kill you. And, and how do you, and, and while we're out here, why don't we learn what these places are about? 
what's mm-hmm. the history of human land use from pre-Columbian indigenous use all the way through mining and extractive industries to recreation and tourism? Like, what's the story of this landscape? And how have humans interacted? So for me, that those are the places. And then throw in a little, you know, good old, um, you know, what gets euphemistically called jam bands. And, and I think, you know, like blues and like reggae, the top 1% of each of those categories is, is ineffable. You know, B.B. King, Bob Marley, the bottom 90% is drivel, <laughs> you know, but the, there were certain, certain um, psychedelic improvisational music communities that were tightly interwoven with those mountain towns. And that's from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to different places in California, to Telluride and Crested Butte and Aspen and things in Colorado. And there was a very, very vibrant um, intersection of live music festivals and celebrations, um, psychedelic and and kind of consciousness expansion, but without woo-woo spirituality and without gurus, which was key. Mm -hmm. You know, and people risking their lives in sublimely beautiful places on a regular basis, which A, filters out an awful lot of woolly hippies and B, you know, acquaints you with Kali, Mm. you know? So if if you have friends that have been buried in avalanches or you participated in rescues or you need to understand how to do swift water rescue in a class five river, you know, these things, they keep you honest. And they are amazingly good bullshit filters. And they are also profound places to, um, to connect with the numinous or, or root reality, however you want to define it, and to do so outside the confounds of socially constructed identities. So, you know, like a Matt, you know, not, not <laughs> this is a hypothetical, let's call it a hypothetical. You grab six of your best friends on a full moon and you hike 15 miles into a pristine backcountry natural hot springs surrounded by snow-capped peaks, hook down heroic doses of your favorite, favorite mushrooms that you've just gathered on the forest floor, you know, shoot the moon, meet your maker. And then in the, as the sun rises, you are, you know, naked to the sublime beauty of the existence as the day you were born and then some. And then as you come back, you know, and, and you're, so you're bathing in, you know, National Geographic, pristine splendor. There's no, how many likes did my last post get? There's no, what are my clothes? There's no, what car? There's none of the social constructs. It's just me as a born again human alive on this earth in God's cathedral with people I love. And then let's begin our, let's begin the first day of the rest of our lives like that from here. And that kind of somatic marker and that kind of, you know, sort of feeling it in your body uh, and that kind of absence of the clutter of culture um, provide, provide, you know, profoundly valuable resets. And then let's go shred, right? Let's strap on skis. Let's hop on our bikes. Let's go and surf the earth, sweat our prayers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and share these times with each other. There's really a lot to unpack in that in that response. Uh, what I'm curious about is, has because I guess over the years we've sort of lost, in my opinion, we've lost the ability to have this peaceful. We've lost our uh, connection with human nature, with uh, the environment around us. 
and going back to, I guess, the original days when we did have that connection, has mm-hmm. have you noticed in, in your studies that because of that, that has also impacted on our performance level? I mean, yes, times a million. Mm-hmm. You know, like that very question um, was, I mean, it, that set the course of my entire academic career and my life inquiry, which was, you know, again, you know, first stumbling across uh, psychedelics in university, having an experience where for the first time in my life, I was like, oh, in fact, I remember there was, there was a, we had a, this beautiful historic colonial campus on the Chesapeake Bay on the, on the East coast of the United States. And there was this beautiful koi pond, the fish pond. And I, and I remember sticking my hand into the pond and it felt like, you know, the Quicksilver in Terminator 2, you know, where he kind of like pushes his hand through the field. And I, and I like, as I pushed my hand into the pool, I was like, oh my gosh, the world is enchanted. Thank God. Like, thank fucking God that this life of quiet desperation, that all of the sheeple going through the motions like robots, that, you know, like the, the proverbial kind of red pill was was possible that magic and mystery were were available and you know the very next obvious shoe to drop on that is like well wait a second why isn't that every day for all of us and then you started looking around contemporary western society and you're like ah oh, this is kind of fucked isn't it and 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 where did we go wrong Right, which is a question that you know people have been asking since Rousseau and the Noble Savage. You know, it's, it's a classic. You know, the dilemma of modernity is yeah. that we destroyed the mystery and have felt ourselves separate from nature, the earth, the animals, the ecology. You know, and and the mystery. And so that kind of looking back over our shoulder inquiry is, you know, been going on for ages. <laughs> and and even in indigenous societies, right, there is almost always there. Well, not almost always. There is often a a story of a pre-rational mythic time when we could the people could speak to other animal nations there was some and then there was some shift some fall some transition and now here we are in some degree of separation even if it's just the prison house of language mm-hmm. so that drew me into study of history anthropology um comparative religion like where did we go wrong like clearly this isn't it, <laughs> you know, like we, we, we're doing all sorts of whacked out things right now. So where was the fork in the road? Mm. And then I ended up going to graduate school to study literally proto, like proto-Columbian contact. So, you know, not the dances with wolves, tragedies, like we all know how this story ends. It ends with trails of tears and reservations and removal and kind of the extinction of the noble savage. Right, because in some respects that was still very much a an Anglo-centric narrative put back onto them. We can wring our hands, we can say we lost something precious, but we're also the ones who did it. So I was much more interested in what happened in the clash of civilizations when it was still a fair fight. So you could really see the different viability and vibrancy of each of these worldviews and lifeways. And for me, so that's Guns, Germs, and Steel, that Jared Diamond book, that was 100% my wheelhouse, uh, Yuval Harari's Sapiens, right? And, you know, and, and 
Harari, you know, he pegs, where was our fall? Our fall was, we were fine as hunters and gatherers. Everything was groovy, good nutrition, lots of free time, you know, et cetera. And, you know, and then throw in anybody in the kind of pop anthropology space who's also says, you know, and polyamorous, lusty, unapologetic women and, you know, and, and many, many people, whether it's sapiens and homo deus or whether it's sex at dawn or any of these kind of books. Lately, we've been really we've been really pointing the finger at organized agrarian society was kind of where things went wrong. Um, and for me, that inquiry, um, well, A, it's perennial and ongoing. And in fact, I don't know if you know Tyson Yonker Porter. He's a, a, an Aboriginal professor. And he had a book that came out a year or two ago called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And he's, he's a fascinating bloke. Um, and has been kind of bringing this conversation full circle because he bridges worlds. You know, he is both steeped in Western academic, um, you know, post-structural critical theory, as well as yawning with his elders and spending time in dream time. And so these conversations, uh, I think, are, are vital and essential, but also confounding and frustrating. Mm. Because because there is there is no going back. There is no setting up initial conditions. There is you know we are where we are willy willy nilly at this point. But to your to your the second half of your question, which is how is this separation from nature, the desanctification, and maybe even the, um, I mean even some some respects just the disembodiment. Right, we're all just massively deconditioned zoo animals, living um, living in ways that no hominids ever, ever, ever have. Full stop. You know, so you can open a, a refrigerator and you have more calories on tap, and many of them are refined and processed and concentrated. So sugars and you know processed flours and all these things. You know, m you know, salty, sweet, and fat. You know, the these are our taste buds are hardwired to say. A, we need salt, you know, the old Roman centurion thing, somebody being worth their salt. If you don't get that nutrient, you're stuffed. Mm. Sweet is berries and honey and, and fructose and just instant calories and our brains go nuts. And fat was, you know, could, was nuts or meat, you know, and, and occasional things like avos, right? And so, so like, and, and, and some of the best long-term calories we could get our mitts on. So then you have, you know, donuts and bacon cheeseburgers, and we don't know what to do with ourselves. Mm. And then throw in, we live in hyper-conditioned environments and we spend all day stuck on our asses. So, so you take that very, very strange set of events, you know, both uh, caloric, um, kinesthetic, climactic, and now what do we have? You know, you've got Wim Hof. And you've got, hey, let's get together in pools of ice and hyperventilate, you know, and let's do intermittent fasting because, you know, actually that's probably a good thing, you know, and let's do muscle confusion workouts or primal movement. And we're, you know, and let's do hot and cold saunas because that's actually good to create, you know, vasoconstriction and dilation. And because we've become such a monophasic culture, meaning we just have one channel of reality that we pay attention to. Um, we, we've become, we've atrophied, right? We've atrophied a, th a host of skill sets, capacities, range, and resilience. And interestingly, I mean, some of it is just trendy, 
you know, and it's just a flavor of the month and it will come and go. But some of it is also, I think, speaking to a deeper yearning, which is we are dying for contrast. We are dying for range of experience. And we, and I guess it gets commodified and it gets hyped and all these kind of, you know, inevitably silly things we do with things, with, with stuff. But on the other hand, you can take a look at the entire biohacking, you know, kind of paleo movement, take your pick of subgenres, and you'll be like, oh, all we are trying to do is simulate closer to what life might have been and used to feel. Mm. Having said all this, which is very fascinating stuff, I'm always curious about how how do we or how should we as human beings behave? Because we have so many, uh, I, I guess you could say, people saying different things. Like you've got the Wim Hof method. That's his belief, which has been proven in many different cases to actually work for a lot of different people. Then you've got other areas. You've got so many different diets. You've got, okay, people uh, are happy and healthy and uh, more than more than willing to go on psychedelics and have all those experiences so how should we, as human beings today, how should we be, be behaving? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, we've even got a, a punch list called, the, you know, the 10 suggestions instead of the 10 commandments, because the bottom line is like these days, no one's going to listen to anybody. There, there are, there's no tops down authority figures anymore. So let's not come up with new commandments, but you could say, hey, here are some suggestions. And the first one is do the obvious. You know, we obsess, we fetishize the biohack, the shortcut, the latest journal study. But, you know, by the way, most of which are bunk. I mean, if anything you learn came from a book by Malcolm Gladwell or a talk at TED, it's probably wrong. And, you know, the, the, the replication crisis in the social sciences, the complete undercutting of fMRIs, both from a software and data analytical point of view, as well as even the theoretic mechanisms of action that have made people bark up that tree for so long um, are all eroding. And whether that's the prison experiment, the marshmallow experiment, the Wonder Woman poses, you name it, right? They're all just less true than we thought. So the do the obvious is, is let's do the fucking obvious, like sleep more, move often, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much, you know, Michael Pollan 101, you know, get outside make love, be grateful, bathe, grieve. That's it. You know, we, we don't need to turn these things into endless obsessions and bloated industries. Mm. And, you know, one of, one of our friends actually was one of the Stanford neuroscientists that first took Wim Hof into the lab. And he's like, look, Wim's a mad genius. Um, Half of the things he does work better than you could imagine. Half of them don't work at all. And he doesn't know which is which, right? And so you get these intuitives who have some kind of savant capacity and they, they go into some place. And rather than us all just A, defaulting to common sense, the do the obvious is, and B, unable to separate mythology this is the story of why this works and what to do and spin around three times and chant the name of this God or bow in that direction. Is it four times or six times? And then is it sage or is it crystal? I can't remember, right? Instead of getting wrapped around the axle of the packaging, the mythologies, can we just look under the hood 
right? And just and and identify the functional technologies. Mm. And really, that's that's the name of the game with with this kind of discipline of neuroanthropology, which is the anthropological part is, huh? How humans, man, we're endlessly fascinating. Why do we do the whack ass shit we do? And 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 taking a look at a present day, you know, a present event, going back and looking at it into the past, and then popping the hood and saying, okay, what are the mechanisms of action? Why does this thing work? You can take the, you know, the, the, the Hail Mary, the Catholic rosary, right? And you're like, huh, that's a fascinating psychotechnology. What's that about? And you're like, oh, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, with thee blessed art thou among women, and the breast of the fruit of thy own Jesus. You know, I, I got shoved into Catholic school when we moved to America. So that's just burned into my brain, right? You've got a rosary, so you've got a tactile, um, fine motor sensation for keeping track and keeping pace. So it's like, it's basically like, you know, an abacus on a string so I can offload executive function. I'm kneeling. I've got smells and bells. I've got incense. I've got pictures of saints. I'm praying and venerating a saint or, you know, a patron saint of my town or my cause. And I'm saying this thing and it's, and it's actually, it takes about eight to 10 seconds to fire off a Hail Mary. And that's controlling my respiratory rhythm and rate. And that is about say eight to nine hertz, which happens to be an alpha wave frequency. So there I am, right, kneeling, respiratory constraint and a forced nine, eight to nine second hertz or eight to nine hertz cycle in chaining me into alpha waves, dim lit olfactory smells that are highly triggered to be, to be with the sacred. And wouldn't you know it, you know, the odds of me having a non-ordinary state experience are higher than usual. So that's the kind of thing where you sort of, you notice, well, what's the there, there? Why do we do what we do? And, and, there's, and if, if it shows up culturally, especially across generations and definitely across time and across space, it shows up in multiple cultures, you can almost be certain that there is something neurobiological under the hood. When we look at history or when you've gone into history before and have you noticed any specific trends in the past that are happening now and having said that are we doomed to fail in society <laughs> like all like spectacularly and decisively soon or cyclically and repeatedly over time soon soon um so, so yeah, I mean, I can for sure, I for sure have some thoughts on that. Um, but back up one second, just give me a little bit more, give me a slightly tighter frame for the first half of the question, which was the sense of sort of looking back, is there anything that, that is happening now or that we're up to now that has happened in the past? What, what sort of thing, what categories are you thinking of? So we're saying in the, in the beginning that the world has really lost its mind and if we look in the past and there's obviously things there that we can say, oh, that person had lost his mind or this culture mm -hmm. had lost their mind. Why is that happening again today? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, um, it's the, the old joke of, you know, history um, doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, <laughs> right? So, so that, that sense is, is, is like, okay, I mean, A, you know, good old Shelley, 
wrote that famous poem, King Ozymandias, right? Where there's this, you know, apparently some badass king in the past builds a statue to his greater glory. Look upon my works, ye mighty and despair. And he's now buried under the sand. Mm-hmm. So, which is kind of the same idea with the Planet of the Apes, you know, like that classic scene where Charlton Heston realizes in fact that you know he was an astronaut comes to the land the planet of the apes etc and he thinks it's a foreign you know another planet he actually realizes when he sees the statue of liberty sticking out of the sand he's like oh shit you know it's here you know i i I got unstuck in time and so on the one hand same as it ever was same as it ever was and on the other right we are from sort of you know 1700 till now in a very novel experiment that is potentially collapsing through the floorboards so if you if you think about it you know one way to think of it is james Cass's notion of finite and infinite games right and the idea that a finite game is win lose and 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 the the job the goal is to is to defeat the opponent and the infinite game is win-win, and the goal is to extend or expand the game for as long as possible and include as many people as possible. Now, this is not, um, you know, generic consensus, but I think you can make a credible case that tribalism is a finite game. It's us versus them, and humanism. Everyone is entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, regardless of race, color, or creed. You could add in gender and, and you know, and an, an additional string of signifiers. That that really is pretty rare and really novel and has arguably only been tried at scale, not within a specific community, not within a specific region, has only been tried worldwide. Like, I don't know this person, I will never meet this person, and we have nothing in common whatsoever. And yet, I still believe at the bottom of my being that they are entitled to the same things I am, or at least a fair shot at trying. That's French Enlightenment, right? That's the culmination of um, that argument and ideas. And, you know, no surprise, it got the most visible immediate experimentation in the American and French revolutions. Mm. Those were the first times that anybody attempted to create socio-political structures, even loosely attempting that. Now, both of them were, you know, spectacular disasters. Mm. So with the French, liberté, égalité, fraternité, sounds great, you know, Good stuff, good stuff. And then bam, Robespierre and the guillotine and the reign of terror. And you're like, oh shit, that didn't work out so well. Mm. And as we see, as as we see the challenges with social justice these days, and we see where there are times where that is getting overheated, you're like, okay, we have absolutely seen this side of the equation where a pro-social set of ideals can nonetheless get hijacked. And we can we can touch back on that uh, in a moment if you'd like. And then on the other side with with the American Revolution, right? You had this paradox, which uh, Yale historian uh, Edmund Morgan famously coded as American slavery, American freedom. And it wasn't just slavery, it was also genocide of the indigenous folks, so, you know, which was pervasive through European colonialism, but as, you know, definitely acute here. So the legacy of conquest in the United States is, is both indigenous genocide and West African chattel slavery. 
And and Edmund Morgan's thesis was, hey, this is this is the black mark, right, on this American experiment, but democracy, the only places that had ever been tried, Greece and Rome, and then the United States, were slaveholding societies. Be precisely because it was a move from tribalism to humanism, and humanism is unstable, right? In the same way that for an individual, you can sort of say after puberty, all growth is optional. If I want to just stay a man child, you know, telling fart jokes and reading comics, I can, right? And after tribalism, where we have the imprinting of others and, and specifically oxytocin, right? Which, you know, in, in pop psychology gets all the lip services, the love drug and the cuddle hormone and the trust hormone and all these ooey gooey things, right? And it does, it bonds mother to child, it bonds lover to lover, um, but it also um, bonds us against them. Excess oxytocin also increases my willingness to troll the other, to curb stomp the other. So when you have football hooligans or when you have political rallies and people, in fact, uh, Molly Crockett, who's a neuropsychologist who was at Oxford and now she's at Yale, um, she addressed the World Economic Forum in Davos specifically and presented a paper on this. What is happening in the situations with political rallies, with the erosion of social status for certain in-groups and out-groups? How do people feel and what's happening neurochemically? And so the bottom line is, 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 you know, tribalism is destiny and humanism is optional. Mm. And, and so, you know, you get something like the American experiment and there's all sorts of very legitimate pushback, frustration, and a desire to stop telling that triumphalist story. Like, don't you tell me one more, you know, one more happily ever after about the old dead white guys kind of thing. And there's a desire, you know, and that's everything from not just taking down like Confederate general statues, but taking down George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln, and Paul Revere, and, you know, all these kind of, you know, sort of the more iconic ones. And that's a legitimate tension in a conversation that we're having right now. Uh, but, and, 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 you know, in history, that's known as the Whiggish interpretation, like W-H-I-G, you know, the kind of, this is the way it's always been, and, the, you know, this is America, love it or leave it, or this is the English way, or those kinds of things. But, Buried in that story, right, is actually the seed of this infinite game. And so if we look to tear down Western civilization, because those dead white guys were kind of hypocritical now that we look back on it and weren't all that, right, and we shouldn't be continuing to pay lip service and diminish the voices of this incredibly diverse world that we're all a part of, there's, there's a very much a baby and the bathwater situation where if we just rip this whole thing down because of our pain and our grief and our anger, we actually risk tearing up the, the seed of the infinite game that is our best roadmap forward as well. And that, right? I mean, and now you get to the question of where are we going as a civilization, right? So tribal identity politics, and it doesn't matter whether you're an alt-right identitarian or a far left social justice activist. Um, actually, there was, a, there was a study coming out of Australia um, testing, testing American political views and they, they identified those two, you know, so it was basically neo-Nazis 
social justice folks, and then some form of kind of moderate progressives in the middle. And they tested them for authoritarianism and dark triad personality traits. So Machiavellianism, sociopathy, and narcissism. And interestingly, the folks in the middle who were sort of in the progressive live and let live category, like I have my feelings, I hold them strongly, I believe them. And I also believe that you ought to have your own feelings and have a right to have your own feelings, was basically the middle folks. They didn't score for either any of those four qualities, but folks on both sides of the political spectrum did in spades, which brings you back to Robespierre and even brings you back to, you know, William Butler Yeats and his, his poem, The Second Coming, where he says, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. And you're like, oh, shit. Okay, so this is a 21st century update where you're like, wait a second, liberty, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity, that sounds great. How did Robespierre smuggle that shit in and end up leading the reign of terror? And you're like, oh, because the because narcissists and sociopaths are willing and able to exploit our tribal imprinting and hijack what might be otherwise well-intentioned movements. And so in the culture wars, A, just understanding the neuroscience that underpins belonging and willingness and identity and othering is really helpful. Understanding how a handful of incredibly bad actors, the sort of dark artists, can hijack movements that might otherwise, in, in the naming and the languaging and all of these things, might you know, on, on the surface appear to be 100% good, can then be subverted and co-opted. And then the final piece is, you know, old Ben Franklin 101, right? When they were getting ready to sign the Declaration of Independence, he said, gentlemen, um, we, we must all hang together or we shall assuredly hang separately. And he was speaking about you know, treason and being hung, drawn, and quartered by the British, right? So either we pull this off or we're stuffed. And so identity politics in this day and age in particular, really, is, is it, it's another version of that, which is to your inquiry. One and only one other thing also has to be true for ide identity politics of all stripes to be bankrupt as a strategy. And that is that we have more pain and suffering coming down the pike for all of us than any single group, however they define themselves, IOUs. So if I say, hey, I'm refusing to cooperate because you owe us, right? Or we have a grievance or we feel wrong and we demand redress before we will do anything else, then the clock's going to run out and we're all going to get swamped by the tsunami. Mm. So the, you know, Muhammad's, you know, old, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You're like, probably. And we should probably commit to getting over ourselves. Because this idea of saying, for instance, that campuses like Yale and Princeton, you know, and even more progressive, you know, Quaker schools are particularly, um, are also, you know, quite subject to this for, for students on those campuses to be saying these places are hotbeds of racism and oppression and we're going to boycott learning and we're going to cancel professors that are you know have un, you know unimpeachable progressive bona fides but not enough for the, the robes peers then you're like guys you're fucking tripping you know, like you want to see racial injustice and violence. You want to see an unsafe space. Try being a Uyghur in Western China right now. 
look at a failed narco state. Look at the Rohingya, you, you know, um, in, in Myanmar, right? We are primed for ethno-tribal genocide when things get hard. And, and so the idea that, that these ideas, tribalism versus humanism, that it's sort of almost in the marketplace of ideas, it's a fair fight. You know, may the best meme win mm -hmm. is completely naive. It's asymmetrical warfare because all the ethno-tribalists have to do is poke and prod the humanists to the point where the humanist then breaks and says, fuck you and swings back and then boom. Ethno-tribalism has won. And by the way, the people who, for whom that's their briar patch, that's their safe and comfortable spot like Br'er Rabbit, right? They're like, ah, but this is exactly where we want to play. Bring it all day long. And in fact, that's why Steve Bannon famously said, he's like, I would love Black Lives Matter to keep doing, like, like I, I cheer for them because that is what is going to get us back in the White House because it's actually... It's it's going you know it, it's going back to the level of the game at which other folks are much more steeped, far less ambivalent, and actually wanting and willing the game to be played at that place of advantage for them. So if you think about like multicultural you know left of center kind of coalition, right? That's way fuzzier. It's way less congruent than white Christian identity. Like that's easy, that's simple. And they've got courage and honor and duty and patriotism and pride and freedom and all these big badass, you know, centuries old, incredibly primed, viscerally engaging words. And what does the left have? They've got intersectionality, you know, and privilege and, 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 and fragility. And you're like, what? Like that does not, that does not a marching band make. So, so those those are some of the um, those are some of the questions, right? It, it's it's you know again to, to just finish up on Robespierre, right? He famously said, "To make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs," and that's all the ethno tribalists have to do. They've got the second law of thermodynamics on their side. They've got entropy in their favor. All we have to do to win is poke and provoke until we get tribal conflict, mm. and the humanists have to try and put Humpty together again. You know, it requires tweezers and super glue and a magnifying glass and one drop piece or one shaky hand and you fuck the whole thing up. And so that's what I mean about asymmetrical mimetic warfare. And so to your question as to are we, you know, where are we now? What signs of the past are we seeing now? Well, what we're seeing is same as it ever was. We're seeing humans scrap for a perception of limited resources and scarcity and to justify the exclusion of equitable distribution by othering the other. The last few hundred years, we have had this nascent little fragile Humpty Dumpty experiment of humanism, you know, backed by the, the philosophy of the infinite game. Can we play where a life anywhere is equal to a life anywhere else? Mm. Right. And, and, and can we guarantee rights and due process, right? That persist, you know, the classic, I detest what you say, but defend to the, to the death, you're right to say it. And, and interestingly, we're getting actually the largest spike in illiberalism is coming from liberals. Now we're playing with two different definitions of that word right now, but like, like you've got 
folks on the left saying, cancel Parler, cancel Fox News, Amazon, Google, Twitter, boot those people off. The Me Too movement even saying, yes, all men, and if, if we have to fucking knock a few good ones out without thoroughly due process and benefit of the doubt and evidence, so be it, our rage is so great and the injustice is so long standing that we're going to break a few eggs here. And so, you know, and the left has also lost its fucking sense of humor, which is bizarre when you think that in the 60s and 70s, whether it's that iconic Vietnam War, you know, the flower girl putting the flower in the barrel of the gun, or the merry pranksters, you know, dropping acid and dressing up like superheroes, you know, or the yippies trying to levitate the Pentagon, you know, the punking, pranking, humorous elements were always on the left. And it was the stuffy, uptight conservatives that had no sense of humor and no looseness to them. So they were ripe for satire, ripe for parody, ripe for getting the piss taken out of them. And now that's completely switched and you've got trigger warnings and snowflakes and you've got the alt-right trolling the libs. And, and now their humor is generally mean-spirited and divisive and somewhat detached from reality. But, you know, I mean, but the reality is, is they are the ones who have adopted the pranking trickster and the whole like, okay, we're just a sign, just kidding, not kidding, kind of, is this racist or is this not Pepe the Frog? What? I'm not really serious. Yes, I am deadly. Mm. And that, right? And that sort of decoupling of whatever you want to call it, text and context, subtext, you know, is, is something that in their loss, in their loss of humor, in their loss of capacity to, um, to engage purposeful play, I think the left is finding themselves flat-footed in the boxing ring or in the martial arts ring, right? They're just, they're, they're just where they are. And as a result, they are just easy and just waiting to get their clocks cleaned by, you know, and, I mean, and, and Trump did this all day long, right? Trump would say, I'm going to tweet something utterly outrageous because I'd like to hijack this next news cycle or divert attention from the last thing that happened. It's going to, I'm going to push all their buttons and they're going to rise up like I just pushed all their buttons. And then I'm going to say, ah, nah, I was just kidding. Or I'll get one of my proxies to say, ah, nah, he didn't really mean it. And then they're going to go, Pum! they're going to splutter and they're going to bluff. And then it's going to die down. And I'm going to do that fucking thing that I texted I was just about to do, even though I said I wasn't going to and I was kidding. And now we've got this epistemic <laughs> spluge and, and all you've got is sputtering and red faced, like, wait a second, that wasn't how it was supposed to happen. So, so yeah, I would say um, it is, we are seeing cyclic recurrence of socio-political conflict and it fits, even though it's got a, you know, modern high-tech sheen, it fits patterns that are time, you know, from time immemorial. And there's something very precious and vulnerable at stake in the extension of the infinite game and humanism. And it is being amplified by technology, by global connectedness, by a polluted information's commons, right? And by algorithmically enhanced weaponization of means against intersecting global meta-crisis. So, you know, so, so in that respect, it's a little bit like, um, what is it? Oh, brother, where, where art thou? Like, we're in a tight spot. I have so many questions coming out of that response. 
you know, for me personally, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to, I, I have the hope that us as humans can accept each other's belief systems and live in quite this harmonic utopia that I guess the, the optimists <laughs> want. Uh, but it doesn't sound like we're ever going to get there, to be honest with you. It sounds like that we're more heading towards the, the doom and gloom side of things because we always tend to poke the bear and, and uh, cause pain for our, our friends and our relatives and, and those that are around us. And like, if it's anything that we've seen in recent times with things that have happened in America, it's like, okay, who really leads this country? Is it the people that are in office or is it the actual people that are in the world, like making decisions? Like you have the left versus the right fighting against each other. Like I believe this, this is right. Here's my facts. Here's my evidence. And both sides seem to have it. And then you've got like the middle ones that are sort of like, can we just have peace and harmony? And it's, it's, it's like this. I have, I have so many questions, but it doesn't seem to be like, for me personally, I, I get many answers to them because like, yes, it's all good and well to say that we, we have all these issues, but then how do we really, when we, we think about it and we get to the real heart of the issue, how do we fix that issue? Is that actually really possible or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's a lot of different ways to respond to that, but one of them is that, um, and in fact, there's a fellow at the London School of Economics named John Gray, and he wrote a great book called Black Mass and the Death of Utopia. And in it, he points out that, hey, be super, super cautious about hockey stick, happily ever after utopian stories. Mm-hmm. He says, often as not, he says, you know, because when the end, end is heaven on earth or, or off it, then the means are always justified. And, and he makes a, you know, what I think is a sort of a fascinating kind of geeky point, but he's like, this is so prevalent in Western thinking because, um, because of the Judeo-Christian Alpha Omega, the begin in the beginning, and then the, you know, there's this fall from grace, and then at the end we all come up roses, and that's really kind of the the structure that I was addressing in this book, recapture the rapture, is that we are getting hijacked by rapture ideologies, and whether they are and, and they're not all wear, you know wearing sandwich boards saying the end is nigh you know, or wired up to suicide vests. Like that's definitely a category, but it is in no way the only one. We have techno-utopian raptures. We have uploading our consciousness to computers or creating space colonies in Mars, you know, or blockchaining crypto, you know, seasteading communities or psychedelic renaissance or neural implants. You know, there are, there are a thousand flavors of it. And they are so tempting because when we experience increasing challenge, conflict, dis-ease around seeing how this pencils out, then the temptation to want to leapfrog the whole train wreck and latch onto, oh my gosh, if only this one thing happens, then it's happily ever after. Maybe not for everyone, but at least for me and mine. Mm. And never mind the collateral damage. Like I, I now disregard 
the world we're leaving behind because on the other side of the inflection point, it's a new, it's a new day. And that becomes sociopathic for exactly who you said, which is the moderate middle, right? All of these rapture ideologies, no matter whether it's the most moral or whether it's the wealthiest or whether it's the best and brightest or whether it's the a particular faith or creed or geography are all one percenter solutions, no matter how differently they slice their one percent, which leaves the best lacking all conviction, right? The rest of us high and dry. So my sense is, is that, um, and, and John Gray makes a great point on this. Um, you know, he says, Hey, Utopian ideals, communism, fascism, Stalinism, you know, you name it, they all, they all actually go bad. Yeah. So let's not try. Let's engage in agonistic liberalism, which is just a, you know, more technical description. The idea of we, we're going to butt heads. We're not all going to end up singing out of the same fucking hymn book. Should we just stop trying? What we want to do is play the infinite game agonistically against each other, but shit, but united in our commitment to the rules of the game. And you know, you're a Commonwealth country, right? You know the expression, that's not cricket. Yeah. Right, right? the idea that, hey, that's in violation of the spirit of the game. Mm. We may not have a referee and we sure as hell don't have slow motion replay cams or lasers, just that wasn't cricket, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's, and it means, you know, it's obviously not just for bat and ball, you know, pitch players, it's, it's, it's an expression of social exchange. Are we honoring the spirit of the game? And so as we all get increasingly hijacked and charged with, you know, both micro PTSD, you know, the day-to-day -day stresses, quarantine, traffic, social media, all the little things that just sketch our nervous systems out and also macro PTSD, you know, war, dislocation, sexual trauma, family, family abuse, you name it, right? Crime, all of these things we become hijacked little hominids and that whole notion of you know hurt people hurt people mm. um turns out to be you know more true than a punchline and so how do we do you know how do we reinstate ritual and cleansing and atonement and connection so that we can digest our grief so that we can remember what it feels like to be connected and in relationship with each other so that we can give each other the benefit of the doubt and shoulder our burden for the work ahead together. Mm. And that's possible, right? But once again, the same way we, you know, we have to really kind of eat our own cooking on this, which is like, okay, that might be possible. Then what? Okay, now we're going to create this wonderful, integrated, holistic, inclusive solution for everyone. You're like, ah, that's another one of those fucking utopian philosophies sneaking in under the back door. So rather than that, we have to say, okay, what is potentially a decentralized set of operating principles that let a thousand fires burn around the world, that let people with different faiths, customs, cultures, communities, ecologies, societies, innovate what is unique, adaptive, and true and best for them, but not relying on everybody to reinvent the wheel or reinvent flight from scratch. Because interestingly, I mean, we like to think that we are these amazing tool-wielding creatures, but there, I was just reading a study that was contrasting human babies, you know, infants to toddlers probably, um, with 
chimps and with ravens even and matched up one against one chimps and ravens kick our asses man they are way more effective at innovating use of tools babies human babies suck but what we're amazing at is actually passing on those incremental lucky hits we do get accruing them into culture and transmitting them stably over time and across generations we're amazing at that best in class so so our so the question becomes um hmm, what does the question become um How do we create a set of liberating structures that fosters innovation while preserving localization? So like an open source software or like a blockchain. Mm. And, and then you like, okay, so, you know, and like whether open source software, like a Linux, if, if folks are familiar with that, you know, and Google runs on it, lots of big, big companies run on Linux. It's free. It's available to anybody. And here's the basic toolkit. Now, if I want to build my own thing to have a calendar or to sell auto drive my car or to pay for my groceries, I can build it based on these tools. If other people also find that useful, then they can borrow it, right? And, and we kind of accrete and grow culture and capacity by modifications to what is a shared toolkit in the middle that nobody owns. So you kind of create a mimetic commons, right? That everybody has access to. And then innovations basically get upvoted. You know, if an innovation is helpful and useful across use cases, then other people will pick it up and use it too. And I think we can do that with meaning, right? Because we've actually had a collapse. We're in a meaning crisis and we've lost both divine authority, the collapse of organized traditional religions and the rise of the nuns, like I'm spiritual, but not religious, don't really belong to any affiliation. So we've had, that's now the fastest and largest group in at least North America and potentially Western Europe as well. I wouldn't be surprised if Australia is following those trends. And we've also had the collapse in benign authority. We no longer trust our governments. We no longer trust NGOs. We no longer trust corporate titans like Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. We no longer trust academia and institutions. And you've got those Ivy League admission scandals and, and again, replication crises and Jeffrey Epstein buying Harvard and MIT media labs. You've got all kinds of shady things happening there too. We don't even trust our doctors, right? That they, you know, they prescribe 80% of the Americans that are now currently in the opioid crisis addicted to heroin, the illegal street drug, got their start on opioids by prescriptions from their doctors. So we have, you know, the church has crumbled as a source of authority, and all of the institutions of modern liberalism have pretty much shat the bed including the very premise of modern liberalism, right? Which is, you know, work hard, go to school, get degrees, get a job, save your money, sock it away for retirement. And you too will have more things, live in a bigger house, have more flexibility, more choice than your parents and their parents before them. Ready, steady, go. Whoops. No, not anymore. So, so the question is, is, you know, if, if that's meaning 1.0 and meaning 2.0, you know, traditional religion was the starter. Modern liberalism was the, was the sort of recent experiment. Both have caved in. And then the middle, there's just that, you know, we get fundamentalism on one side and we get nihilism on the other side. And there's this giant sucking vacuum void in the middle for the rest of us. 
how do we build meaning 3.0? How do we take, you know, because religion was all about salvation, but it was exclusive. It was only for the believers. It was only for the elect and everyone else burns in hell. Modern liberalism was, you know, said there's no such thing as salvation or it's all personal and it's up to you to decide, but we'll offer inclusion. You know, but then the fact that, you know, as Nietzsche said, God is now dead. We got rid of salvation. Right? We got rid of access to the mystery or the numinous. Um, then everybody ends up collapsing on with nihilism and diseases of despair, depression, anxiety, addiction, and ultimately suicide. So to your point, right, my sense is, is that we, it's really critical that we don't just put one more city on a hill and start rallying the troops to go climb the mountain because they always end badly, right? But if we actually kind of say WYSIWYG, you know, what we see is what we get. We're here now and life's a bitch and then we die, right? It's tragic. It's also there, but for the grace of God, it's, it's occasionally epiphanic and magic. And the fact that it's both of those things, at the same time, and we're aware of it, is it puts you in shit or go blind territory. So all we can do is laugh and weep together about the absurdity of the human condition, and therefore it's comic. So like life is tragic, magic, and comic. We have we have the need for healing. We have the yearning for inspiration and the necessity as tribal primates of connection. And if we can manage those three things, healing, inspiration, and connection, right? Without a destination, without some escape hatch, right? That old Bob Dylan tune, I always think of it. He says, someday everything's going to be different when I paint my masterpiece, you know, which is a very wry thing for old Dylan to say. He was full of them, right? But that idea of like, no, of course, nothing's going to be fucking different. And you're not going to paint your masterpiece unless you actually commit to it. Right. So that idea of saying, hey, never mind the masterpiece someday. Let's embrace, you know, Zorba, the Greeks, like full catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Let's actually accept and and let's let's assume that we're not going to get to a perfect society. So we'll commit instead to agonistic liberalism, the ba- endless backing and forthing of mutually assured dissatisfaction that frustrates almost everyone and, 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 you know, and satisfies nearly no one, but kind of perversely works-ish, right? Better than any other option we've found, right? So let's commit to that at the socio-political level. At the existential metaphysical level, let's commit to let the mystery stay the mystery, right? It, it's, it's fathomless. And there's no point talking about there from here. And let's, instead of seeking to transcend this human condition, let's actually show up deeply and embrace it. Mm. And so, you know, when life, you know, and, and, and it has to be in balance between the healing and the inspiration and the connecting, right? Because if you spend all your time in inspiration, then the sacred burns you, right? You blow your fuses and circuits, you come, you come unglued from reality and you can't hold a day job or look after your children. Right. So you just overexpose the film. But if you spend too much just down in the mundane, in your pain, then it will crush us. 
the relentless monotony and grind of the human experience and all the hits we take along the way. Right? And if we do it in isolation without each other, we have no way for accountability and support and celebration. So, so to that point, when we, and that's the flywheel, right? It's this, it's this for, we're forever cycling through and we'll, what we, we get knocked down, we get back up again. We travel a little ways together. We get knocked down, we get back up again. And like, this is the process of our life. And once we, once you stop trying to fight that and you don't have to get all cross-eyed and zazen about it. You know, or let me go back and read my Eckhart Tolle again. Oh, the power of now. It's like, no, fucking anything. The now is profound. Kairos, right? Sacred time is exquisite. And most people don't spend nearly enough time there. However, if I'm trying to cross the street in Sydney in busy traffic, I need to be down here in Kronos. And I need to understand when that blinking green thing is happening in clock time. Or I get my clock cleaned. So it, it is It is both always forever. And, and that experience, you know, it gets immortalized. It's, it's Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. It's Jimmy Stewart in a, in a wonderful life. It's Dorothy in a Wizard of Oz. It's, you know, you name it. There's, there's countless examples of, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And that sight is almost always a return with new eyes and fresh gratitude for this life I'm living as I left it. And that's really the sort of initiation, you know, what scholars would call, you know, the initiation into anthropos, which, you know, uh, uh, the most common visual I think we all share for this is Leonardo's Vitruvian Man, right? That idea of an integrated human, balanced, head, heart, heaven and earth, left, right, male, female, all of it. Integrated, balanced, engaged, vitalized, dedicated, joyful, playful, courageous, human. And then you realize, oh, I'm not trying to get off this little blue marble. I'm not trying to transcend my condition or my responsibilities or the density or grit of this whole crazy shoot match. I actually realize... I've now gone to see for myself, and this is like self-initiating techniques of ecstasy. Like I've now gone to confirm for myself. I didn't take it on second or third hand news, right? I wasn't just reading my just so stories in Sunday school. I actually went and confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that we in fact are starlight dressed up as matter. And there is nothing but love, light, energy, information, every which way to Sunday, as far as you can look or feel. <clears throat> Got it. Like go hunt your white whale. You know, and, and these days there are more tools, techniques, and pathways to go and do that than, than have been broadly accessible ever. That also has a whole host of problems that comes with it, but that is what it is, right? We have open sourced the mysteries. So go see for yourself, scratch that itch, hunt your white whale, and then come home and realize, because the inflection, like the profound and beautiful life-giving inflection point is when we realize, oh, that, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, cosmic soup, <laughs> right? What extent souls or personalities or identities persist? What extent they, you know, who the hell knows? None of us do. If we're still here with hearts beating, we don't really know, right? So let's let the mystery stay the mystery about that part. But it can be fair to say that in fact, right, the only place our prefrontal cortex is in spinal columns, 
plus our opposable thumbs, right, are actually co-located. The only place my mind and my thumbs are co-located is here and now. And with that combination, I can think and I can act and I can move matter around. You know, that is the, the possibility of the human experience. And, you know, and if you think about like back to mythologies, there's so many like breadcrumbs and Easter eggs in, in our myths, right? But think of the immortals, whether it's the angels or whether it's the gods of Olympus or whether it's vampires, right? Consistently in the stories, they're always a little, they're always fascinated, obsessed, and maybe even a little jealous about mortals. And we have to kind of ask why you're like, well, what, and what is it always? Well, it's that we seem to care so goddamn much. And, and the only reason we can compared to someone who can never die is that we understand that every moment we have is borrowed time. So we're sort of the existential mayflies of the universe. It is our brevity that gives us our dignity. And it gives us the contrast and it gives us the pathos. And the moment we can come around to that and be like, oh my God, like this is hot, this is tragic, but it's also magic, right? Then we have a chance to fully embrace, you know, what you could, you know, you can call it anthropos, you can call it just kind of being a good old fashioned homegrown human, which is I'm an initiate into the mystery. I haven't just had my head down, shouldering my burden with a sense of, life's a bitch and then I die. I'm actually connected permanently to the bearing witness to the full spectrum, right, of this great unfolding. And yet, come Monday morning, I shoulder my yoke, right, and I whistle while I work. Man, I could listen to you forever. <laughs> but one of the things you mentioned there for a moment, we're in the middle of a, a thunderstorm here in Sydney, Australia. If you can hear the rain nice. and the thunder and the lightning. But one of the things that I wanted to, you mentioned, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, you know, that that's a beautiful song. And then what I also, I've never done this before, but I, I want to sort of pinpoint, you mentioned uh, the salvation aspect of things. Now, what I, this is what I believe, at least, that salvation wasn't just for the believers. It was for everyone that chooses to believe in the first place. So the whole idea for me is, okay, Christ came to die, sinless death. He, there's the, there's the thunder. <laughs> but he, he willingly gave up himself for all mankind, not just those who would one day believe in him. You look at it, you look at everything that we've been talking about, ultimately it comes down to choice. A choice to believe one thing versus the next. What, what makes us do things, we think about it, then we make a choice to, to go on that action. And for me, when I look at uh, the salvation aspect, I just wanted to challenge um, I've never actually really challenged a guest before <laughs> on my show, but it's really like in talking about this whole context of this conversation, I'm curious for you, like finishing up, like your book is titled Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God. That's the very first thing. Mm -hmm. Where does faith for you or God 
come into play, into context for your life or does it? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, I, I, I spend the last couple of chapters in the book speaking directly to this. Mm. Um, and it was even given that, you know, the first chunk of the book is called Choose Your Own Apocalypse. And it's all about existential risk and yeah. identity politics and all sorts of, you know, volatile conversations. And the middle part is about psychedelics and sexuality and respiration and music and all these things to, you know, blow yourself sky high and transform your consciousness. Like I was like, ah, that's all in the day's work. The, the place I actually felt vulnerable was opening the chapter on my, my relationship to faith mm. and how I have attempted to kind of chart that course over my life. And yeah, I have, I have no quarrel with the Nazarene, right? Um, many, you know, as Nietzsche said, there, there really was only one Christian and, and he died on the cross. Mm. So I think many of the distinctions and contractions have often come by the middleman presuming to speak in his name. And for me, that notion of a human, a mortal, filled with doubt, ha yoked literally, in this case, you know, to his cross, right? Um, and doing and forgiving them for they know not what they do. And if this cup be not mine, may it pass from my lips. And couldn't you, all I asked is for you to keep me company through the night. Couldn't you have at least done that? And the one closest to me will betray me. Right? These are, this is deep, profound pathos that I think we can all relate to. And, and, I was committed, you know, in my undergrad and grad studies to anything but European history, anything but Christianity, anything but American history. I kind of ended up backwards into it by accident. And the same thing like with, but, and with Buddha, it was like, well, I get it. His insights are amazing. His struggles wasn't feeling it so much, you know, trust fund kid shoots an arrow over the castle walls, wanders off, wakes up, beams up to the mothership, peace out. You're like, mm, man, I mean, amazing. You totally nailed reality, but not my fumbling mortality. And, you know, Taoism, I was super drawn to Taoism. I was, you know, have always been a fan of gravity sports and wind and waves and mountains and oceans. So like going with the flow and, and, and learning to connect with nature, fantastic. You know, but like Lao Tzu's like the dude in the Big Lebowski, you know, like he just abides. He's just there. You know, he shows up fully formed. There's no life arc or journey that you can model your own on, you know. And basically, if you're suffering, it's because you're not aligned with the Tao. You should just chill out and align with the Tao more. And if you are suffering, you know, and, and, and then when you do that, then it's, and then it's awesome. And that's it. And there's beauty in that simplicity. But again, didn't serve as much of a roadmap. And, and so, um, what I noticed was that strangely, the, I, I couldn't wrap my head around the organized religion that had come up in his name. Mm. 
but that the exemplar of that life lived couldn't shake. And whether it was like that Paul Newman movie, Cool Hand Luke, you know, or that science fiction book, Stranger in a Strange Land, mm. you know, or One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, right? <clears throat> the notion of the tragic sacrificial hero in Western art and literature is inescapable. And yet I also found that the one, the, the moments, the phrases, the, the examples, um, as often as not came from outside Christianity. So like Pema Chodron is a Tibetan Buddhist thinker. And she said, you know, to be alive is to be continually thrown out of the nest. You know, to, to be alive is to, is, to, is to die again and again. You know, and Leonard Cohen, who's a, who's a Zen Jew, you know, is the one who wrote that beautiful poem that became a song that was the, in the soundtrack for Natural Born Killers. Um, there's a crack in everything. It's where the light gets in. And you're like, oh my God, yes. You know, and then, you know, it, it's, it's hackneyed at this point, but the Japanese like wabi-sabi and kintsugi, right? The idea of beauty and perfection, beauty in imperfection and mending broken ceramics or pottery with golden glue to make the, the cracks shine, right? Back to Leonard Cohen. And even in China, there's chongzi. It's, it's joy bathing. The idea that we can mend our wounds with happiness or bliss. So you're like, okay, that feels quintessentially human. And that doesn't feel so parochial anymore. And, you know, and then like Tila de Chardin, the Jesuit mystic, you know, had this, had a notion of, you know, this was mid 20th century. He was a total heretic. He got, you know, banned from France and forced to move to China and the, and the church, you know, suppressed all of his writings until after he died because they thought he was such a bad influence, you know, but he had this idea of like, Hey man, maybe we're going to end up with the umpteenth coming, not the second coming. Maybe it's not actually going to be one more dude showing up, you know, and the, and the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, the next Buddha will be a Sangha, right? The idea is not going to be an individual. It'll be a community. And Tila's thesis was basically that, hey, there's the atmosphere, there's the biosphere, but there's also the noosphere, the kind of shared realm of mind. And that, that as we become both more into our sovereign individuality and aware of our interrelatedness and connectedness, that we will actually approach a singularity at the end of time at what he called the omega point to you know balance the alpha the in the beginning and at that point the experience we will become the great superhuman being through the process of christogenesis we will become the body of christ all of us together but not into some muddy stew right where actually every single you know snowflake is preserves its uniqueness and yet also becomes the mountainside becomes the, the, the snow field. And, and he named this, this was, he wrote this, I think he might've written this particular phrase back in the thirties, but he said, here's how it's going to go down, which is super prescient for today. He's like, there's going to be three intersecting curves. The first are going to be, is the carrying capacity of this planet, which to think way back then, that's what he was pegging. You're like, man, okay, I have to, I have to give it to you. Um, the carrying capacity of the planet would be one curve. Can we figure this out before it crashes? And then those drawn to the infinite game and those dedicated to playing the finite game. 
And that crisscross crash of those three lines is going to occur at a singular point, the omega point. And then those dedicated to basically love for everyone, regardless, right, will resolve and redeem the whole shooting match. So you're like, okay, so now that to me, so, so instead of, cause I mean, Christianity has such, you know, deeply problematic branding issues, right? It just does. And it has nothing to do with the founder and everything to do with the fallible human sense. And, and so what do we do with it? What do we do with that archetype of the Christ? And, and this notion of becoming a Megan's really feels like a beautiful kind of resolution. You're like, oh, can we wrap our heads around that? Hell yeah. And does it actually require doctrinal belief? Definitely not. Because baked into it is the sovereignty of the individual self. So it means that like, we, you can connect to the mystery and by, you know, and it's easily programmable these days. Like we understand the exact neurophysiological recipe that has been used in every single wisdom and initiatory mystery tradition for time immemorial. And you can get there on a weekend if you want to with household materials. So you can shoot the moon and you can lob yourself into the superordinate information layer, you know, from, from which all blessings flow, right? And, and information, endless information, inspiration, connectivity, all of these things. And so you can go there and you can believe what you want to believe, right? You can run any interpretive script you want. You could be agnostic and go, ah, no idea, but it was cool. You could be theistic. And I've seen angels or saints or the, you know, the, the deities of my pantheon. It could be aesthetic and you could be like, oh my gosh, wow, the fractal symmetries of my mind's eye. It could be materialistic and you say, this is just the synaptic activity of my sufficiently juiced neurons. Believe what you want to believe. Just never lose the faith. Mm. Right? And, and my roommate in university has his grandfather was a storied Quaker theologian. He was actually the, the minister at um, Stanford University and he advised presidents and he was also one of the lead, um, lead facilitators, I guess, of undoing the Japanese internment camps after mm. World War II. So a principled, really wise, deep fellow. And he has a beautiful phrase in one of his books where he says, faith then is not belief without proof but rather trust without reservation. Mm, I love that. Right? And so that sense of like, because now we have the cheat codes to the infinite game, we have the ability to go and see for ourselves, right? That trust comes not from taking someone else's word for it, not in hand-me-down just-so stories. It is in us repeating the, the self-initiatory process, right? Of understanding what does it mean to live a twice-born life? You know, Goethe said it. He said, he, he who does not know the secret die and become mm. will remain forever a stranger on this earth. Right? So it's, it's a resurrection practice. We can do this. And once we've done it, we find ourselves typically, you know, more inspired. We have an experience of what the Greeks used to call anamnesis or the forgetting of the forgetting. So you have a peak experience and you're like, oh yes, I remember this. I remember what this is about. I remember who I am. I remember my special purpose or mission or whatever it might be. I remember. 
deeply, viscerally. And I also notice where I'm banged up and broken. And I also get a laundry list of the things I need to do to, to basically bring my waking states more and more in line with this peak state. And I can bypass it. I can go back and try to hit the, hit the buzzer like a rat with cocaine. I can, I can fuck this up, but it is also mine to lose. And if I take the peaks and I plow them into my valleys and I raise the overall stage of my life, I can braid those two things, my mythic life and my biographic life together. And then they're whole cloth. And, and you know, maybe we can even um, conclude with this, but this is certainly one of the, one of the things that, that I find most helpful is, is the Zen ox herding parables, right? And they're, they're 10 famous, um, I guess I would imagine they were either watercolors or, or sort of uh, pen and ink, but there's you know, beautiful abstractions of a seeker looking for enlightenment. And in this case, it's symbolized by an ox. And I just remember reading it in school and there's 10 panels and I was gobsmacked that I got to panel number four. And that was, I thought that was the whole ball game. It was like enlightenment, you know? And then panels five, six, seven, eight, nine were all these crazy subtle distinctions. Like, you know, like there was the ox and then you've forgotten the ox and now you are the ox. And then there's just a mountain and you're like, I don't even understand any of that. But then the 10th one, the one they end on, yeah, has never left me, which is, you know, it, sa it says that the, 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 the verse is translated, it says his doors and windows are locked. Even the wisest scholars cannot find him. He is down in the marketplace among the people with helping hands. And so we think about that. You think, okay, so, so there is no place like home, right? The mountain top is halfway, right? It is not the destination, no matter how many people are tempted to snap the selfie up there and to have death, rebirth, initiatory experiences that connect us to our deepest purpose, but also return us to our daily commitments, relationships, and responsibilities, but with a little bit more spring in our step. Because when we glimpse Kairos or when we step outside of kind of regular clock time, and by the way, I mean, right, I mean, the, you can't get away from it. I mean, Kairos is the axis mundi, it's the vertical axis. And Kronos is the chronological clock time. And at the intersection, in many esoteric traditions, is the beating, bleeding heart of Christ consciousness. This is what it means to be in this world, but not of it. This is what it means to be a flesh-bound mortal misfit and aspire to the, the angels of my nature. So that sense is, is it's not a bypass, it's not an escape, it's not a, it's not a rapture ideology. It's to say that our humanity, we find it at that intersection of our divinity and our mortality. And to bear witness to that is, is the sort of greatest blessing, burden, responsibility, and, you know, wouldn't you know it, force multiplier. Because when we, when we glimpse the deep now, when we glimpse past, present, future, perfect and co-arising and emerging in Kairos, there is a persistent sense. And I, and I don't presume to say this is always and exclusively true, but, I, you know, but you can find it 
in the traditions and you can find it in poetry, song and art. And you can, and I certainly have heard it self-reported many times by seekers of all stripes, which is that persistent sense of a scatesthesia, the persistent sense that, holy shit, I just saw the end of time and it all works out. I don't know how, I don't know how, but I've been there. I've, I've glimpsed the end of the movie, almost like going into a theater and opening the wrong door, you know, because you, and your showing starts in 15 minutes and you actually see the end of the movie you're about to go and sit in. It's like that. So you come back from Kairos, you're like, oh my God, holy, sh like we have already won. We actually, you get to sneak peek at the Omega point. And so we come back into Kronos, into clock time. And you're like, blur, blur. okay, wait a second. Now I'm back here in the story. And I get to live out these middle chapters, which for a while were confusing and I didn't even know were part of a bigger story or book. They were just my life and I was crushed by it and I didn't know what sense it made. But now I'm gifted with the exhale, right? The good news of, hey, psst, it all works out. And now I pick up my part, both as the actor, you know, all the world's a stage and men and women are, but actors upon it, right? Like, so we get to play that game, but we're not just actors on the stage. We're also the playwrights of the infinite game. And because we know, or at least we have faith, mm. right? Trust without reservation that it all works out in the end. Then I don't have to white knuckle my part. I don't have to sweat and stumble over my lines. We get to play. And we get to bring a little bit more humor and humility and courage to our performance because we know that we know that we are playing a bit part in a much larger passion play. I love this line of thought. I love this having deep conversations with people. I always appreciate it because it gets me thinking and it gets me wanting to ask so many questions but with the limited time that we have just want to say thank you so much jamie for for everything for explaining so much i feel like we could have gone on for another two hours <laughs> but um where can people find your book connect with you and learn more about you sure so the book comes out uh at the end of april and it's you can find it at recapturetherapture.com um, or Amazon or where independent books get sold in your life and world. Uh, we also will be running um, sort of study guides, like a user manual to go with the book. And there's ways for people to plug in. There's an open source toolkit for anybody that would like to be helping build in their own communities, uh, kind of the next version of meaning to address the meaning crisis. Um, and also the organization that I founded, the Flow Genome Project. Uh, is another place to come check things out. So uh, good luck to everybody. And I think the best thing we can do is truly let a thousand fires burn. Like let's get on this and we don't need to keep counting angels on the heads of pins. Like if you're close enough to knowing what's yours to do and whether that's planting a garden or loving your family or starting a company or opening a soup kitchen or whatever, whatever it is, let's get cracking. And then let's share our triumphs and disasters together. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. 
It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.